Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, and I am a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. Hello to Sean, our director in the studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our mind, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. In this show, I will share the tip of the week about people who are facing the pain of watching a family member or a friend suffer from an illness. It's still, it's tough, it's tough, but there is a way to make it easier on you. We'll also share about listening to someone who's ill and maybe irritable and uh, how to be with them in a compassion. I am excited to bring you Kai Whiting, who's a lecturer and researcher in Stoicism and Sustainability at UC Louvain in Belgium. Kai is the co-author of an intriguing new book, Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living in, tackling common myths about Stoicism. You will love the conversation, I promise you. But first, here's the tip of the week. tip of the week. This week, I've been working with many people, friends, colleagues, and clients who are facing the pain of watching a family member or a friend suffer from an illness, whether it's depression, bipolar, cancer, dementia, MS, Parkinson's, and chronic pain. Being a caretaker for someone who's suffering from an illness is filled with mixed emotions. It's difficult to feel that you deserve to rest take a breather, be happy, or even enjoy anything around while a loved one is suffering. The emotion of powerlessness creates depression. The attempt to kick out of this powerlessness at times leads to many desperate actions that do not necessarily help anything, but it depletes one's energy and financial resources. The process of grief already starts knowing that you will be losing someone Experiencing the helplessness and watching the process of deterioration, deterioration becomes heart-wrenching. At times when others say nonchalantly, get over it and that's just life, all will be well, brings rage. Facing living with and interacting with a loved one who in the time of pain, they can be needy, irritating or demanding is really, really tough. Listening to others who try to be positive and give a general sentence of, it will all be okay, creates disconnection sometimes. It's as if nothing can help. Trying to keep pseudo positive in front of the loved one that is suffering so that it doesn't affect them is tiring. The responsibility of being a caretaker is heavy and tiresome. So what can we do to lighten up this process? Let me share with you 
ways that you could take care of yourself, self-care. One, know that all that I mentioned above are normal reactions of a compassionate human being. You experience and re you experience and react, your experience and reactions may differ and be unique to you. It might be very different to anybody else. So honor them, honor the way you experience and feel. Create a way time, physically and emotionally. You need to rest and be away from the pain sometime during the day in the week. Set up one caring and pampering act for yourself during the day. Massage, nature walk, exercise, yoga, meditation, something that not only takes you away, but also takes care of you. Be present with your loved ones, no matter what condition they're in. You don't have to fix this. You can't fix this, but be with them. Your being as it is with them is what gives them the love, the caring, and inspires them to do something for themselves. Your love and acceptance will go a long way for you and them. Be respectful to your body and to your psyche. When you feel like you've reached your limit, remove yourself, take care of yourself, and then come back. Find resources and support. Ask for help. Assess what is in your control and what isn't. Let go of what's not in your control and act on the ones you can. Assess what action can actually be beneficial and only spend your energy on those tasks. You deserve to live a happy life, even though a loved one is suffering. For more awareness and ways to learn about yourself, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration Path to create the love, to create the life you want. And um, be good to you first. When you care for yourself, that's when you can actually care for others. In the Ask Me segment, I have someone who is asking, he's a 50-year-old um, man who is um, married with a 15-year-old son, and uh, he lives in Germany. And he says that his wife, for the past two years, have been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, she has been very, very upset, angry, and um, at times verbally abuses him, gets very, very hostile toward him. He says that sometimes at the same time that she is being hostile toward me, if um, someone that um, is her, the member of her family or a friend calls, she becomes very kind to them. She laughs, she enjoys the conversation, um, but this is what happens to him, that they are in two different rooms at this time. And um, the 15 year old is kind of in the middle. So he's really asking, what do I do? The relationship, the marriage, the relationship is really deteriorating. And um, it is also becoming vital for him to take care of himself. And yet obviously he feels bad and guilty. 
and he says if she did not have um, the cancer and she was not ill, um, he would no longer want to stay in this relationship. But at this stage, he feels really guilty if he actually took the route of letting go of the marriage. So he's asking, what should I do? It is a very difficult position to be. Um, I don't know if what you got you and um, your wife has been going through, it's the same before the diagnosis of cancer. Many times when there has been a lot of built up anger and the person have kept it in their body, obviously it turns into illnesses. The concept of is she if she is angry to um, the spouse, but not angry toward people does not mean that they're not angry. They could be angry with life, with their marriage, um, with what's going on with them, even angry at cancer and the illness and their body. However, they try, people try to hold an image in the conversation that they might have with other people because you have people who are close to you and then you have other people who are out there, which you need to kind of like, um, you know, do the social etiquette and be appropriate to them. Sometimes we don't want other people to feel pity for us. So we hold that we're strong and um, all is going to be okay. And we're taking care of ourselves and we receive the love from other people as if they don't have to do it. So um, I'm not going to say something to upset them. It might be different than someone who's very, very close to us and we let them see the rage we have. And it's important to see whether there is a way of conversing and listening to see what is it that the person who's ill that she can share with you. What is she angry with you? Maybe there is something that the person can do. Maybe if they just listen and hear without going into a defensiveness, that at one point they'll have an understanding of what's going on and why their wife is so angry at them. If they open the conversation, they might find out that, yeah, they could do something, they could change some of the behavior. Maybe there are needs that um, his wife has, but it's not coming through and he needs to hear it. And maybe possibly if he can, you know, offer that help and support, or maybe shift the expectation of his wife and say, I can't, I hear you. And maybe I can find other people who can fulfill those expectations for you if you're needing from something from me and I can't offer it to you at this time. Or she can just be angry, sad, anxious about her body, about death, about what's going to happen in her life. And at that time, the only close person that she might find is the person closest to her, which is her husband. And maybe that's just the place she's dumping it. So if that's the case, then be able to bring other support so that she can have the space of venting off and then coming back and creating another maybe vulnerable or um, safe and unique and loving space with the husband. I can totally understand that at one point it's like, I'm done, I can't handle this and I just need to remove myself. So removing yourself from the room, uh, taking an away time, I think it's important and I'm glad that you're doing it. So minimizing those times that um, she might become verbally hostile and asking and kind of noticing what time of day she might be a little bit more favorable to be able to talk. Sometimes it's just creating 
events that you guys can enjoy. Maybe an enjoy enjoying a music, maybe enjoying a good movie together, um, bringing happiness into those hours of uh, that you you're together. When you if you find out that she's also interested in having some unique and uh, fine time with you, um, maybe they're afraid that the husband is no longer going to be there for them and their fear turns into anger. So if you can listen to find out what the rage is about and if there's anything you could do about the rage, that's it. Go ahead and do it. If there's nothing you could do about the rage, see how you can protect yourself against the rage, but connect in all the different ways. You've been married for more than 16, 17 years, so maybe it's connecting to all the beautiful side of the marriage, um, your value for her and her value for you. Maybe shifting the conversation to the value uh, that you have for each other, the love that you had for each other, the connection, and um, to going toward the healing of each other. Uh, regardless of whether you stay or not at a later time, at this point, it seems like the whole household needs some healing. The 15-year-old in the middle is going to be devastated to have the possibility of losing their mom, having the possibility of losing their dad. So um, also asking your 15-year-old, what does he need um, at this time? Where his pain watching his mother go through illness? Um, is there anything that he's needing here? And also looking at what you're needing. See if you can also ask friends, family, and other people to support you for your need or anyone who as a counselor that can support you. This time when, when you see an illness within a system that shows up for one person and then it shows up all over the place, we've also got to clean up the whole system. So looking at you and seeing how have you been before the cancer happened within the marriage? How have you been toward yourself, towards your wife, toward your son? How can you shift who you are and bring healing and love toward yourself and the whole system? And uh, begin with that. This system needs healing and get support for healing. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fushan Zane, and I am excited to have Kai Whiting with me. He is a lecturer and a researcher in Stoicism and Sustainability at UC Louvain in Belgium. Kai and Leo Konstantakos, um, they are the authors of the intriguing new book, Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. Both inspiring and engaging, the book tackles two common myths about Stoicism. One of them, is it really a dead white man philosophy? I don't think so. It comes through every day and you can utilize it every day and Kai will let us know. And then Stoicism has nothing to say about a wider world. Well, we're gonna really discuss that today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It was so concisely put, I couldn't have done better myself. So first of all, the first question that shows up for me, you know, I've, I've been in the world of uh, philosophy and psychology for more than three decades. How come stoicism is coming back like there is no tomorrow? Like it's, it's everywhere right now. 
What's going on? How come now? There's, there's two answers. Firstly, the, the ancient answer of, well, it's useful, right? If it wasn't useful, it wouldn't come back. I mean, I guess you could have to make that not absolutely useless, but it's unlikely that something more than like 2,000 years old is something of interest. The other thing is a simple answer, money, right? Silicon Valley got wind of it and loved it. And Silicon Valley, Valley has cash. I mean, it sounds very cynical, but it's the truth of the matter. A lot of things that become sort of flavor of the month and stay that way. It's not a secret that there's people with power and money behind it. It's sorry, sorry to say it like that, uh, doctor, but that's that's true. Well, thank you for being honest. When I as I read Stoism, uh, what's interesting for me is that there's nothing new that I hear about it because it's been kind of like embedded in all of the other type of philosophies and all of the self-help conversations is all of the philosophy of the psychology conversations. So it's one of those things as I'm reading your book, I'm like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's how the experience shows up because it's nothing that you haven't heard. And yet it's so crisp. It shows up as so crisp. And, um, and it's to the point, real, and, um, and I loved it. So I just wanna have the chance with you to kind of go over some of the conversation that you um, and Leo have shared in this book, okay? Okay, thank you. So um, one of the arguments is that the destination is happiness and fulfillment. And this path is open for every human being and is, should be, or is the ultimate purpose and the highest aim for humankind. Can you share a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so the Stoics were quite, the ancient Stoics were quite unusual in the sense that they said it, the path to happiness was open to everyone. Aristotle didn't say that. Aristotle said you had to be male, you had to be educated. That if you were a laborer, you probably weren't gonna be very happy. If you were poor, you weren't, you weren't able to obtain happiness. And the Stoics said, <laughs> it's really simple. The only thing that stops you from obtaining happiness is you. Your thoughts, your actions, your attitude. And they said, this is why. You can be wealthy, and yet you can be miserable. And, you know, Los Angeles is full of people that are wealthy and miserable. You can have not very much at all and find happiness and contentment, not necessarily in the situation, but in who you are. You can still say, yes, I am poor but I have worth, I have self-worth, I have self-esteem, I have value. And that value doesn't need to have a dollar attached to it. Whereas a lot of wealthy people might lean into their money and might sacrifice sort of their, their moral character, the only thing that matters to obtain more money or more power. So you've got lots of people who are famous and you know, miserable or famous and willing to you know, sacrifice what they uh, see as an important value. I mean, to mention say Harvey Weinstein, a lot of people were felt that they had to sacrifice something of value themselves, their integrity, their body's integrity, in order to you know get a job in a film. Stoicism says, really, the only thing of value is your attitude, your actions, and your thoughts. In the sense of, okay, are you contributing to the common good? How do I know if I'm contributing to the common good? Am I being just? Am I being courageous? Am I saying things that need to be said when they need to be said? On the other side, am I keeping quiet when I need to be quiet? It's not that we need to be activists. Stoics don't necessarily have to be activists. But to remain silent, silent when you should speak 
is of lack of wisdom. So the Stoics say, you know, you, you need to work on your wisdom and you need to work on temperance or self-control. And if you can do that, not just to clear headspace, because Silicon Valley will say, oh, you know, you do this so that you can put, you know, you can lift heavier weights or you can get a job or you become powerful. And they say, no, you create headspace so that you can, instead of worrying about the, you know, the little things in life, you start thinking about how you can contribute to wider society. And that is stoicism in a very small nutshell. Um, obviously, stoicism has endured. And uh, it is useful on an everyday basis, as you were just sharing and bringing it to the modern world and how we could use that every day. So it actually provides uh, useful tools and methods for reflecting upon and reframing thoughts um, so that they can serve rather than impede us. By the way, everyone, this is in his book, I'm reading you, okay? So that they build rather than destroy our communities. Um, you talked about the four virtues um, that Stoicism talks about, courage, justice, self-control, and wisdom, and you brought it beautifully into the um, example that you were talking about. And they're meant to guide the choices and actions in great and small. So. Um, uh, the Stoic understands virtuous character to be uniquely human traits that signifies excellence, as you say in your book. Um, there's a striving that we all have in order to go to be our ex uh, excellent self. There's also this concept that uh, shows up as uh, what works for me and you just shared. It isn't just about me. And I think you introduced uh, this uh, con concept of a relatedness which uh, as, as Stoicism talks about that you are, a you know, your nature is a human being and anything you make a decision based on these virtues should be for the betterment of all in all relationships and in all the roles we have. Can you share about uh, the level of uh, the circles that you've created and, and share a little bit about that in our relationships with the world? So historically, Heracles, who, who was a Stoic, he created the idea of you start with yourself and you, you have circles that you kind of went into. You grab your family members and your family members become like yourself. And you grab your friends and you treat them like family. So if you have an argument with them, for example, you don't say, that's it. You treat them like your family, like, okay, I will endure because, you know, with friends, we don't often do that necessarily. And then we take, you know, the, our community and we treat them like friends. And we take the global community and they, we treat them like the local community. And it doesn't mean we treat everybody the same because it's not appropriate for me to treat, say, my mom the same way that I treat a friend, right? So there is some sort of balance there. It's not that I'm treating everyone like my mother, but to understand the connection and to build on that. The circle we added was the fact that we felt the environment needed to be included. Because without the planet in which we, we, we sit on, like literally or stand on, depending on what we're doing, Nothing else makes sense. And we felt that if we could understand, not that not necessarily that, you know, we could become trees or anything like that, but that trees have, you know, give to us what we need to survive, literally in terms of oxygen, and that they are worthy of consideration. So these circles are called circles of concern. A lot of people are saying now circles of care, but it's basically say, who is worthy of my consideration? And what does that mean? So if all I do is think about myself, then I'm actually neglecting my role as a human being because I should be caring and concerned about others. I can see myself on some level in humanity and see all of humanity in me. So when I make a mistake, 
I don't beat myself up about it. I think, well, you know, I'm human. At the same time, when someone I don't like very much maybe makes a mistake, go, oh, I've done that. Instead of going, well, that person's a terrible human being. How dare, you know, we can get like that, doctor. We can go, how dare they? And, you know, have a list of all their faults. If we see them in us and go, wait a minute, maybe I also have some thoughts of my own and maybe I have to also correct them. You know, what I think in the, the Bible it says about the, uh, you know, take before you complain about the log in someone else's eye, take out the dust in yours. So in the Stoic sense, if you're only concerned about your status and your money and, you know, your own things, you've kind of missed the point because you're not operating as an optimum human being. The Stoics would say an optimum human being is a human being who's connected with the world that they're situated in. Does that make sense, Doctor? Absolutely. And you also talk in your book about this myth about a self-made man. And you said a lot of people talk about I'm a self-made. However, when you live in a community, when you live in on earth, you were never self-made. First of all, you were made by your parents and then the nature. And then you are always, you know, you have been dependent based on all of the community you were just talking about. Uh, to grow, to become success, to, for your business to grow, and the whole uh, as a part of the and the citizen of the community and the world. Um, so, can you share about that? So, yeah, we uh, yeah, and it is typically men, isn't it, that claim to be self-made, that claim which basically means I deserve all the fruits of my labor. So they won't necessarily say, oh, it's, everything is down to me, but they say I deserve everything good that comes to me. And I don't have to in the US, for example, I shouldn't have to pay taxes to help other people. And the, and the Stokes would say, but hang on a minute. So you made every product in your factory? You designed every product? You made the roads that got to your factory? You, this, you know, the shares that you are living off of, even if you say, oh, my salary is really low. Yes, but the share package you have, did you create that? Did you, were you buying every share and selling every share? So basically trying to take a step back, I mean, taking what, or even a global view, like what does this really mean? Okay, I'm not saying, I'm not saying here that we should be communist, quote unquote, that we, they should share, share every fruit of their labor. It's not what Stoics are saying. They're saying, you know, understand there is fruits of your labor that, you know, may or may not correspond to you. You may, quote unquote, deserve some of it, but a lot of it would be down to luck. So we can take a person who has exactly the same skill set, put them in the same situation, you know, of being a business person 50 years ago, and their results will not be the same, even if they do exactly the same thing. And so we kind of push back, doctor, about, you know, in self-help, we say self-help should be about helping yourself. But if you follow my lead, it might not help you because, for example, I'm British, I'm male. If I act like, if you act like a man in a meeting, people will say very negative words about you, doctor, because you're a woman. Doesn't matter to them sometimes if you're intelligent, more intelligent than me, you've been there longer than me, you're more experienced than me, that that won't matter. They'll just say, oh, she is. And then when I do exactly the same thing, they'll say, oh, so such a leader, <laughs> so successful, just the kind of person we want to get behind. And there's an example of you and I doing exactly the same thing in the same meeting, and yet you're seen in very negative terms, and I'm seeing very positive terms. And again, the self-made man will say, well, yes, it's because I'm a leader. He won't even look in the direction of the woman and say, well, she's a leader too. But society doesn't yet recognize that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And this, uh, what the example you just said is exactly the same as um, expression of anger. 
like if if a ma a male in the corporate world or anywhere expresses his anger as an authority uh people will say wow what a charisma wow you know we're gonna go follow him versus if a woman does they're like okay i don't think so we this is you know this one is not the she shouldn't be there uh, exactly. So there is a role, roles perspective that is there, but you've talked about luck right now. And I know in your book, there is a section that uh, there's actually a chapter talk, uh, that talks about luck. And you say that the concept of luck or a chance, as we generally understand it today, did not exist in the concept of stoicism. And instead, the, the belief is that nothing is truly random, but rather the unfolding of cause and effect as part of the natural order of things. Um, and, and having that perspective would gear us toward more problem solving versus looking at, uh, you know, if there's nothing I can do, it was just luck. Yeah, we seem to be quite flippant when it comes to men tend to, again, it's I'm not saying every single man, but tend to, when things are when things go well, it's like, oh, that's lucky. And then take that luck and think, then incorporate it as part of themselves and then think actually it wasn't luck at all. It was because I, I was also in the right place at the right time. Uh, whereas women, they go, well, yeah. I, women tend to acknowledge when they're, they're lucky. They say, well, actually, I'm just really, really lucky. And, and women play down, play down their role, right? Because of how I would argue how we've been educated. But Stokes will say, you know, luck is, is a consequence of you being uh, who you are in, in the place that you are. But it's, it's something that it's not really like, oh, I'm so lucky to have won this. It's not, it's not like that. It's like, oh, I, of course, of course that would make sense to me. Of course, as I and those circumstances around me join together, this will happen to me. This is my sort of fate and there's not much that I can do about it. However, I can still choose as part of that fate to look at how my attitude is working for me. So a lot of people will say, oh, it's because I'm a woman or it's because I'm a man or I'm because of whatever and say, well, it may well be. But if your attitude is negative, then you'll play a part in your own luck. So luck happens through you, not to you. Does that make sense? A lot of people go, I was lucky I won the lottery. It's like, well, it's through you. If you had never bought a ticket, if you'd never thought, you know, and done it on a regular basis, the likelihood of you, likelihood of you winning is very, very low. So when we say, oh, he was lucky or she was lucky, Stokes will say, well, that doesn't make any sense because it doesn't happen to you. It happens through you. I really like that sentence. It happens through you. The other uh, virtue um, that that you talk about is, uh, and from Stoicism, is knowing what is in your control, distinguishing what is up to me and within my power versus the one that it isn't. Right. Um, a personal benefit of carefully considering and acting um, and distinguishing the dichotomy of control. Um, while most people either think everything's my fault and positive and negative is mine or somebody that thinks I have no control and I am just a victim of the world. Yes, that, that is very common. And again, it goes back to luck. Whereas it, let's take yourself, you've become successful, not simply because you were from a stoic perspective for you were lucky. There is an element of the fact that you were in the right environment, you, you were living in a place, you were born a certain place, you were born a certain year, but also people don't see behind the scenes, for example, that you were networking for the last 30 years, that you're working towards, you know, building a community. There was something that you saw and you wanted to develop. And I think we, we fail to see that. We say, you know, the person's, the person's 
book or podcast, overnight success. You and I both know there's no such thing as an overnight success. There just there is a what I go Michael Gladwell will call a tipping point, right? It's like at which point does that become something you know of a reality to me? The problem is that we tend to understand that when it comes to things like I don't know building like a, a bicep, we're like yes. I know what I need. I need, you know, I need a protein shake. Won't necessarily help you, but you'll go out and buy one. I need to wear a certain vest. That won't help you build a bicep either, but you'll go out and buy one. Oh, I need to get a weight. That will help you, but we do all these other things. Go, yes. Oh, I can do one rep. Okay, but tomorrow, if you continue, it won't be because of the vest. It will be because of the weight, because the effort you put in to actually lift the thing, you'll get to 15 eventually. And we understand that, doctor, on a very sort of personal basis. But the same holds true for climate breakdown. We might not be able to do anything today and you wouldn't have been in the position that you are today if you hadn't done all those 20,000, 50,000 steps to get where you are. So we apply it on a personal level, but we, then we get to like climate break and go, oh, or plastic in the ocean, your mind control can't do anything. It's like, hang on a minute. It's exactly the same as lifting the weight. You can't do anything today, but if you take the steps necessary, then tomorrow you will be more able to impact upon, say, a beach clean in a, you know, a Californian beach. If you don't meet those people, if you don't drive to that beach, if you don't think about the plastic in the ocean, you'll never be able to do that. So the Stoics say, hang on a minute, don't just automatically assume it's not in your control and therefore will never be in your control. Say, it's not in my control today because I haven't, put, haven't done those steps, haven't took those steps. How do I take the next step? And that's really what is in your control as you have shown in your career. I love what you just said, because um, I do see many people where when they think the problem is way bigger than them or that they have no clue or they have no authority in doing something that they kind of like, you know, uh, wash their hands and say, mm, can't do it. It's not my problem because I can't do anything. And you brought a very, very good point saying that Yes, the problems of the world could be large, but the point is in each one of us are responsible for a piece of it. And if I take the responsibility that I need to take, um, even if in a minute level, but continue doing whatever it is, even if it's small, that it affects the bigger picture overall, whether I do it with my own body or whether I do it in relationship with, um, with my friends and family and community um, or an, in a bigger uh, perspective of earth and nature, right? Correct. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful for people to really capture where um, their, their virtue or their courage or um, their integrity and responsibility lands in order to create a space which is livable and uh, space that can create happiness. Because if I don't, like you just talked about, if I, don't, if I don't care about the other person, then I will have, as we do right now in Los Angeles a lot, then I will have a group of people who may be ill or may be homeless. And then if I still don't care that the group will become so many of them, where ultimately, even if I'm living in my castle, the minute I walk out of the castle, there it is. Correct. It's in my neighborhood. It's right there. 
So if I don't, if I keep saying I can't do anything, then nothing will be done. But if I do what I need to do, whether it's pay my taxes or whether help the NGOs or whether help what, however, the person thinks that they can, small steps can actually produce large, uh, large results finally when it's done uh, repeatedly. Correct. Then you're not called to do everything. Or for example, people, I got criticized literally last week because I wrote a piece about council culture. And someone said to me, well, why didn't you write about the Yemeni conflict? That's more important. And it starts in, it will, they will say, it depends on your role. I was like, I don't speak Arabic. I don't live in Yemen. If I write an article on this conflict, I'm coming from a place of ignorance and I'm just going to add noise. You have to pick your battles very carefully as you yourself know. In, your, in, in your, the job that you do, you can't speak to everyone. There's an opportunity cost. You have to decide who am I going to speak to today and why am I going to speak to them? And what is it that I want from this conversation? And you, you know, set out notes. It's not like it magically appeared. And yet sometimes we either say, I can't do anything or the government should do everything. And then we kind of like move it in two ways. Either I'm, I'm not responsible or I'm not responsible. Instead of saying, well, what am I responsible for? there's no such thing as being selfish really and there's no such thing as being altruistic these concepts don't really exist it's like what is the right thing to do based on who you are and where you are because if it's the right thing to do it's not selfish for example if i'm very stressed out and i need to give myself space the best thing to do is to give myself space and not be like oh he's being selfish no i'm not i don't want to be rude to you that would say something bad about my character so it's better that i cancel with time and not do that to you and give myself space so that we can build a relationship because not about selfish versus unselfish. And there's no such thing as altruism, right? It doesn't make sense. It's not, I do something good, even though I don't have to. It's, I should do something good because it's the right thing to do. So these two concepts are very modern concepts from a straight perspective that just doesn't exist. That's why we talk about the fact that they call people who were not interested in the common good idiots. That's where the word comes from. Can say if all you're interested in yourself you've missed the point and going back to what you were saying if i ignore the example of homelessness it will eventually bite me <laughs> because as even with my castle i'll have to invest more money in defense or fences or security and actually you think okay now you're responding now you're putting the money in or now you're putting the time in but actually you might have been just as well you know serving the community by going down to the soup kitchen Maybe homelessness is not your thing. Okay, what is your thing? What is that really you want to change because of your position? You say, okay, I can't really change homelessness because you know I'm a woman. I don't feel particularly safe in the street. Okay, what can you do? Oh, well, I want to support women. Let's say in my church who have you know who need space when their marriage is not going so well. I can open up space and time for them. So it's not about doing everything. It's just about asking yourself, what can I do? and with whom and why and also not doing too much because a lot of people go I should do everything no it's not about doing everything I often say to, to women unfortunately if you're a mom and you have three children and you're doing this volunteering job and this volunteering job maybe you should just be a mom for now maybe that would be really good because if you don't do your job here with your kids no one else is going to do that it doesn't mean we should never do it but I think women do do a lot, tend to do a lot more than say men, because men know where to say no. And women say, well, if I say no, that makes me a selfish, bad person. And Stoza says, if it's appropriate for you as a mother to spend more time with your kids, it's not selfish, it's not bad. On the contrary, it's virtuous. Does that make sense, doctor? 
It's very much virtuous, yes. But it, sometimes there's a choice of whether you, you know, uh, what are you losing on the other side when you're choosing this space? And does the system allow for you to, uh, to honor yourself and what you need right now and then get back right, um, you know, in, into the career world or the system also does not allow it? So, um, and then who creates the system and how are you responsible for creating that system? Um, you, um, in, in social media, stoicism has sometimes been the darling of the ultra right. And uh, in your book, you make it clear that ancient stoicism, it's not, it, it's not necessarily synonymous with the ultra light. And I've had actually, um, I had another gentleman who was also a professor in, in university in the US who wrote about stoicism and he was ultra right. And part of our conversation was, it's interesting because some of the things that are in stoicism and we talked about, when you put it right onto the other side, it somehow, it, you know, on the, on the front, it doesn't make sense. Maybe somehow in the back, it makes sense. And when you said, um, we're going to do what is right. The question shows up, but isn't it in reality, people's perception of what's right really shows up as what's right for them at that moment. And then they kind of justify what's right. That's a fantastic question. It's the best question of every day. That's a, oh, I love that question. Stoicism works because of something called the Socratic dialectic. You and I, find out what's right by having a conversation. If I personally think something's right and I never discuss it with somebody, that's not stoicism. The problem that I have with the alternative right when they claim that is like, well, who have you spoke to? And they're like, oh, ourselves. Well, if you haven't spoke to the cosmopolis as in your global community, then you can't claim to be following reason because as, a, as all humans have the capacity for reason, you and I come to what's right for dialogue, doctor. If I believe for one minute that I'm right because I've read a book or something like that, and I do know what you're talking about, I have met also colleagues of mine who are on in terms of right, I ask them, how many people have you spoken about this to? to? And the answer is very few, or their echo chamber, right? We all have them on Twitter. And that's not stoicism. Stoicism says, no, you debate it, and you both come to the middle, like you'll say to me, well, actually, though, Kai, You've just said that if that's the right thing to do, but you could then say, I believe it's right and therefore it's right for me. That's not stoicism. How do you, what's right for the cosmopolis? What's right for the global community? How do you know that? By talking to the global community. You can't do anything in stoicism in terms of reason by yourself. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is why I push back so hard to the alternative from, you know, the alternative right when they throw these kinds of you know, conversations at me. It's like, well, you're not talking to me, you're talking at me, and that's not stoicism. Stoicism is actually neither left nor right. right. It's not tribal. It says, what is reasonable? For, for, the, for the, when I discussed earlier, I said, if you're a woman, maybe you shouldn't really necessarily work with homelessness. Maybe that shouldn't be, depending on where you are and how safe you feel. There's no right answer, but I come to that conclusion because I talk to you about it, doctor. I say, does it feel right to you? And say, oh, I wouldn't feel very comfortable, very safe walking in the street. Okay, and would that make you feel uncomfortable to the point that you couldn't serve the wider community? Yes, then don't do it. <laughs> like, but unless I ask you, unless I listen, I'll never know. So if anybody ever claims that it's alternative right, you have to ask them how many people have you spoke to about this? God. You're also talking about the wisdom 
the wisdom of not uh, living in the reality out here and not the reality, the subjective Correct. reality in here. So although every one of us starts with a subjective reality here, but to bring it out and do some sort of a reality check out here, where Correct. then creates that type of, and then bring our wisdom into it and see what works and what doesn't, not only that it would benefit me, but it benefits uh, my family, my friends, my community, and the, the global, uh, you know, population at large and the nature because obviously that's our home we live here so if we screw it up we really screw it up so it's it's the wisdom is to be able to see what's re real out here who am i and what my needs are and based on these two then look at the bigger picture and the wider effect of it and use that wisdom to make a choice and, and an action based on that choice correct yeah exactly and so that's why Zeno, the founder the advice was know yourself. If you don't know who you are, you're lost because you don't you don't know how to orientate yourself. So for example, people might ask me, what's your opinion on the American flag? And I don't think it's particularly appropriate for me as a British person to have an opinion on the American flag. But that doesn't mean that an American citizen shouldn't have one. And that's also the ability to know when to speak, when not to speak with whom and the way in which to do so. Because some people need it very softly, some people have to be very direct. And it's in, I call it like a, a dance of virtue, finding out between you what's virtuous and what works. Like you and I, we have again, that, that subjective truth in our mind and say, okay, what color should we paint the walls? And it, oh, white, oh, white, good. And then white becomes the objective choice because we sat down and we've discussed it either very quickly or very, you know, for a long period of time. I don't think it should be white, I think it should be blue. Why do you think it should be blue? Now that's a very simple sort of discussion, but when we're talking things about council culture, should we cancel people? To what extent should they be cancelled? Should they? Should it be the first step? Should it be the last step? Who should have the right to cancel? Should anybody have the right? Is it a group decision? But who? Who's the in group? Who's the out group? And that's why I think we're seeing a lot of tribalism, doctor, because we're not having those discussions. We're just saying cancel that person or don't cancel that person. Cancel that person or free speech. It's like, well, if we have a discussion where we actually want to arrive at reason rather than me being right, because that's the difference, difference between reason and me being right, then that way we kind of find a solution. And that's another thing I think is missing in the US, US politics or at least social media politics and the UK, where we're not arriving at reason, what we're arriving at is I want to look good, but I'm not being better. As we said, we say that stoicism should make you a better person, not just make you feel better for five minutes, or make you look good, as as you know, virtue as opposed to virtue signaling. Well, I mean, I don't even know how cancel culture is effective uh, because I could see where somebody could assert control at that moment where there was no access to your personal YouTube channel and your personal podcast channel and personal everything, where at any moment, you, if you have an idea, you could still spread that idea however you want um, and go to the specific people. So the cancel culture appears to be creating a statement that this institution is no it's not agreeing with this belief system and therefore we cancel it because we don't want to identify with whatever is happening in order for us to be associated with this conversation it doesn't cancel the conversation correct it doesn't cancel the person 
they just go create their own podcast and YouTube channel and they'll have millions of people. And, you know, based on how the algorithm is, it just feeds to the same group that they really want to hear. But what I also hear from what you said is it takes away from the dialogue that actually can happen between the oppositions, between the different ideas where they can hear each other, where they can debate each other in an appropriate way versus just now due to social media algorithm, just feeding the same thing we know over and over again, as if, because I heard it every day, then it makes it obviously true. And, um, and which is not the truth. <laughs> so I just heard it today because it was fed into my social media because at one point I chose it to be in my social media. And now the world tells me, you know, bombards me with it. And then therefore I think, see, the world bombards me. It must be out there. Correct. So that's why I started saying, okay, what's reasonable? What dialogue, I mean, I don't think, folks don't say we should have a dialogue with everybody. So if you're inciting violence, obviously that dialogue has to happen in a specific place and doesn't have to happen right now. But to just silence it, full stop, end of story, doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it's the same historically as exile. People misunderstand exile. They mean they think it means like somebody gets sent away. It means actually you get sent out of the city gates into no man's land. And if you die, we don't care about you. And that's the danger, I think, council cultures like the new exile. Like if you die on a publicly, you know, social level, we don't care. And like you say, that person may go away, but the idea won't go away. The only way to make bad ideas go away is to debate them, is to bring them out into public appropriately. I'm not just, you know, saying as a story, we should put, you know, these people in front of school kids. But we had an argument in the UK, like they said, oh, the, the students at Oxford shouldn't be listening to this. The students at Oxford, if they can't hear it, who can? If they can't debate it at Harvard, at Oxford, at Princeton, and so on and so forth, at community colleges, who can? This is precisely why it's become unreasonable. It's not that we shouldn't cancel anybody, regardless of what we've done, but if it's simply something they've said and it's not inciting violence, there's, there's more danger, I believe, in thinking that you're making it go away. When, like you said, all you're doing is you're tucking it under a rug that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and a smaller and smaller group of people are associating with that and becoming you know, quite dangerous because it becomes uh, us versus them rather than how do we create a group? How do we not have an in-group and an out-group? And, you know, obviously we have different groups of people, but we don't need to turn our backs on people. We just have to say, like, when you come here, here are, you know, here are the rules that we have. Here's the game that we play. Come in if you like. If you don't want to, that's fine. We're not going to cancel you. And that's why we, we, we wrote that uh, piece, uh, Jonathan Church and I. But people push back, like I said, they're like, well, why don't you talk about other things that are just important? There is lists and lists of things that are important, Doctor. You, you know more than I do in, in your role. You have to pick one thing and you have to focus on it. And I decided to do that because I'm sitting at a university and I can see it. That's why I'm saying I'm inviting your audience to not try and do everything. I'm actually inviting them to do less. <laughs> do what you should do and only what you can do and not try to do more, not try to be a martyr or try to you know, balance so many things that you become ineffective. And you're not going to be good at everything. I learned that very much the same way as you're talking about. I was just intrigued about everything. And it was like, oh, let me try. And it's like, no, there's there's so much information, even in one field, that if, if you wanted to be upgraded consistently, even in one field, you have to be narrowing yourself in that, but to be open to the rest. But definitely, if you were going to 
create some sort of a mastery for yourself, you would really have to narrow on that on that account. Um, real quick, uh, you also talked about Stoicism and Sparta often linking by like male life hackers because of what we perceive like sense of toughness. And uh, but your book really talks about spares and queen and land reforms and why is the popularity perception and historic reality so different? It's easier, isn't it? It's easier to, to say that Sparta is literally just being tough and strong. And because it, it, it you know, it's a very sort of masculine, you know, we create a masculine trait, it's something that men aspire to do. And instead of saying, well, yeah, they were tough and strong, but they did it for the sake of the community. Then a lot of men no longer have excuses, but you want to be tough and Spartan, what are you doing it for? Oh, I'm doing it for myself. In Sparta, there's no such thing as a self doesn't exist to, to an extreme that I actually disagree with because it was, you did not exist as a self. You existed as a Spartan and what was good for the Sparta was good for the, good for the Spartan was good for Sparta. There was no I really in the concept, in their, in their head. So we've gone, you know, thankfully we've gone a little bit that way. But if, how many men hide behind that? How many men say, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a good man for my wife. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to help my kids with their homework occasionally. I'm, you know, I'm going to be a manly man because, you know, that's you know, the Spartan ideal, basically, in the, you know, in the CrossFit gym. I'm like, okay, you can do CrossFit. Do you do CrossFit so that you can help other people with, you know, cross the street with their groceries? Do you do CrossFit so that you have greater discipline when you're leading the team and you can take tough decisions saying, for example, no, I'm not going to fire people. I'm going to take a pay cut. That is, is, is Sparta. That's saying, I don't exist as a CEO, as a, per se. I exist as a CEO because of my people. So the Spartan thing is I will take a pay cut where I can and I won't fire people and I will tuck my belt in and cut my cloth so that other people don't get fired. But most people will say the Spartan will take the tough decision and fire people. And that's completely contrary to what the Spartan ideal was really. I know I put it in a modern context, but that was it. And so that's really interesting to me that we've gone so far the other way. I also think that the concept of toughness has changed and has to change. Like uh, there was a point where uh, there were no tools and, you know, humanity was living in a jungle and the men had to be tough in order to protect their community and, you know, fight a lion in order to survive. So that type of a toughness was needed. Rarely at this point, I think the same type of a toughness is necessary and toughness might be. Uh, look like a whole different way of being. So maybe the virtues that we used to call toughness is no longer necessary in that way. And what has become necessary is another way of toughness or, um, you know, smartness, uh, the, the wisdom that you were talking about in what are the tools, what are the characters, what are the ways of being that is necessary right now that would support me and the global community. Uh, Kai, we have one minute. Anything okay, cool. that we haven't shared and you really, really want everybody to know? Yeah, just one. Uh, this conversation isn't necessarily to make you go out and buy the book. Actually, I'd rather you ask your local library for a copy so that people who lost their job in the pandemic can read it for free. That to me is the best thing you can do. After, If you like this conversation, literally go out to your local library or your university library and order the book in because that's how people, you know, that's how ideas spread. And I wouldn't want anybody who just lost their job not to be able to read a book they wanted to read because it wasn't available for them. Thank you. Everyone, being better. 
Stoism for a World Worth Living In by Kai Whiting and Leonidas Constantakos. So please, where can they find you? You, all, you said that for them to go to the library, but can they also find it in a website or Amazon or anywhere else, the ones who yeah. do want to buy it? Yes, available where all books are sold. Uh, again, think of your independent store if you can, if, if that's available to you. Um, if you do like it, it would be wonderful if you could leave, leave, a, leave a review on Goodreads or somewhere so that other people can also see uh, what's going on. But that's not really my priority. If you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at Kai Whiting and stoikai.com. Beautiful. And um, I would also suggest if uh, when you buy it, you read it. Another thing you could do is to buy some more for your friends, family and spread the word. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye bye.